Grace and practice, that's the name of our message this morning, and we're in 2 Corinthians again, chapter 8, and I want to look at the first 15 verses of that chapter. Here's a tremendous story, and this 8th chapter here is where Paul takes up really the second purpose for his writing this second epistle. He wanted to encourage them to follow through with their commitment to contribute to the relief of the suffering saints in Judea. And I'll speak about that a little later on. I won't just, but I want to emphasize that the first purpose was to provoke repentance for their failure to follow Christ in his, with respect to His principles of righteousness in their conduct in, a, in several areas. And this neglect led to prideful divisions, to the acceptance of false doctrine, to the toleration of immorality, to the misuse of the Lord's Supper, and the misuse of spiritual gifts, which Paul sought to correct there in that first thing. And, and a number of, of other things, too, that I've not even mentioned. This first epistle was Paul's hard letter, and it was designed to provoke this repentance. He was hard on them for the, for the purpose of getting them to understand their wrongdoing, that they would repent of it and seek the Lord's face so that they could go on to do what God had called them to do. And in the, in the midst here, and Satan hates the church. He hates it. And when we do right, he's going to do everything in his power to cause us to stumble. His minions sit in the church and they cause you to ignore the preaching of the Word of God. They get distracted with other things. And when you go home to tempt you away from living righteously and holy before God. As Paul emphasized there, our, our business as believers in Jesus Christ is to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and to perfect holiness in the fear of God. That's our business. To live for the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk in His ways, to do the things that are pleasing in His sight, to do His will. And when... when uh, Paul's letter began to provoke them to, to want to do the right thing. You know what Satan did? He sent in false teachers into that church who publicly opposed the Apostle Paul and viciously attacked him and accused him of the very things that they were manifesting. Isn't it interesting? The enemy always wants to accuse you of the very things that they're guilty of. And this and and why? Because they wanted a prideful prominence, and a, uh, in among the church, and to and to be able to control the spiritual life of those believers. 
We have this. We've seen the same thing in churches today all over America. Men who get in the pulpit who are more concerned about their own image and 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 their own likability. They'll they're willing to, unless to compromise the principles of Christ in order for them to elevate their own position. And they ignore preaching what needs to be preached. And they preach what they want to preach, their own philosophy. And because of this attack, it created a period of anxiety in the Apostle Paul, which he freely speaks about. After he had sent that letter, he wanted to know, because he had also sent Titus there, he wanted to hear from Titus a report about how the letter was received and what was done. And again, here again, I think, and and the Lord allows it, but I think the Lord allowed this period of time in which he could not get uh, get with Timothy. In fact, he... He, he said he went. there was a place there where, where there was an open door of ministry, but because of his anxiety over hearing about them, he left there to go to Macedonia so that he could get with Titus there and find out what had actually taken place and gone on. And when he did, Titus informed him that the letter was rightly received. And that's the blessing. There in chapter six, uh, 7, excuse me, verse number 6, it says, But God who comforts the downcast, he's referring to himself. God comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. What a relief, he says, it was to me to have this brother come. And then in, chap- in uh, the same chapter, verse number 9, it says, I rejoice not... Because you were grieved, because they were grieved, they they were greatly burdened, they were convicted, greatly convicted about that when the letter came and they read it and they were convicted. And he said, "I'm I'm I rejoice not because you were grieved in uh, by by way of conviction, but because you were you were grieved into repenting. That's why I wrote it. I wrote it so that you would repent." Happily, the church's relationship with Paul was also clarified. They hadn't listened to these false teachers. Their love for Paul remained strong. And so there in verse number 7 of the 7th chapter, he said, He, Titus, told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. And Paul then concludes by stating there in verse number 14 of that 7th chapter, whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. And we we understand here, boasts here is in a good sense. Paul understood that these believers were true believers that God had saved. And that that church had been formed they're under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And Paul was not ashamed of stating that fact. You people are a people of God. 
and he could tell other people in other in other cities and places, look to the look to Corinth. See what God did in that very wicked city. That awful city. Filled with immorality and sin. He called out a people for his name. And they struggled, and we struggle. All believers struggle. That's part and parcel of our being a believer in these times and why God does not take us immediately to heaven but leaves us here so we can struggle. We can fight the good fight of faith. We can see how the Spirit of God will use the Word of God and the power of God to to overcome our sinful natures. So help us to die to sin that we may live to Jesus Christ. So after that settled, and in Paul's mind and heart, he turns then to the other issue that uh, was also a result of their failures. And that was the heavy persecution that had come to Judea. And that coupled then with the terrible famine that gripped that part of the world, put the believers there in very desperate straits. I think we're, we're... in line to start to see that happening right here in America. We don't know what desperate is. We were just reading there from uh, Elijah. And after Elijah prayed that it might not rain for three years and six months and there was a, a, a desperate famine on the land. And God took care of him there at the brook Cherith. Uh, can you imagine being having your supper delivered to you every day by ravens? Do you know what ravens eat normally? I mean, they just, they just really enjoy roadkill. And I wonder how many times probably... He thought, I hope this is roadkill they're bringing to me. <laughs> yeah. But after the brook Cherith dried up, he went to Zarephath. And here's a poor widow woman. She's out gathering a few sticks, and Paul said, or Elijah said to her, Would you bring me a drink? And uh, she said, sure. And she went to get it. And he said, and by the way, while you're gone, would you bring me a biscuit? And then she turned to him, and I'm sure she had tears in her eyes, and she said, sir, I'm going to tell you something. Life's hard. What I'm doing right now is I'm gathering a few sticks, and I'm going to take those sticks home and build a little fire because I have just a handful of meal left and a little dab of oil, and I'm going to make a la- one last biscuit that my son and I are going to share, and then we'll have to die because there's nothing left. That's desperate. But the prophet said, don't fear. God's going to take care of you. That little dab of flour and that little dab of oil 
will not fail until this famine is done. You're always going to have a biscuit to eat. Now some of us, we'd come in and say, Honey, what's for supper? Not a biscuit again. Is that all you got? Is this a biscuit? That's the children of Israel in the wilderness there with the manna. Just a biscuit. Ah, but see the care of God and the provision of God? We thought, we we don't know what desperate is. But I think we're about to find out. But the believers in Judea were desperate. Persecution, they couldn't work. They were, they were fearful of their very lives. The famine had taken all the natural... I mean, they couldn't garden because there was, nothing to, there was nothing to grow. Paul took it upon himself to raise an offering among the Gentile churches to send to the believers in Judea to help them out in this desperate situation. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, and that chapter, in that chapter he deals with this, As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. I'm asking you to set aside every week a little money so that when I come, I can receive that money and, and, and put it into the collection and take it on to the needy saints at Jerusalem. And Paul was very careful how he collected that money and how he had witnesses to show that he was going to do it honestly. I, you can't trust a lot of the people who are asking for money today. You just can't trust them. But Paul said, you can trust me. It's going to the needy saints. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2, it says, For I know your readiness, of which I boasted about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia was, has been ready since last year. So here is a full year has passed, and because of all the other problems there in the church, the Corinthians have failed to fulfill their commitment. And this failure then gave the apostle opportunity to then develop the doctrine of giving here as evidenced in, uh, as an evidence of the grace of God in our passage here this morning. So what is what is giving? You know, giving comes from the word charis, which is also translated grace. We are recipients of God's giving. God has given to us um, unbelievably. And grace, this is the grace of God. And grace affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. That's what grace has brought into our lives. It, is, it could be defined as the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps them, strengthens them, in, in, increases them in their Christian faith, uh, and, and their knowledge of the things of God, uh, their affection for God and other believers, and kindles in them then uh, 
the desire to exercise the Christian virtues. This is Strong's definition. And I think that's a pretty good definition. Let me read it again. Grace is the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls by the Spirit of God, turns them to Christ, keeps them, strengthens them, increases in them Christian faith, knowledge, and love, and kindles in them the desire to exercise Christian virtues. So when grace is given to one, a holy and benevolent spirit, spiritual condition results. And it is this benevolent spirit that Paul appeals to in the passage before us. This is not about giving money. You, you know how over the years I, I haven't stressed giving as a requirement, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not looking for your tithes and offerings. I'm looking for you. You give yourself to Jesus Christ, I don't have to worry about the tithes and the offerings. Well, the one thing that I can tell you is that people who claim to be Christ followers who never give are not Christ followers. Period. If you don't have a generous heart, you don't know Christ. So this message is not trying to pressure anybody into to giving. And if one has been granted a merciful kindness, the merciful kindness of God to conform to the character of Christ, that one will naturally and graciously and generously give of themselves and of their substance to the benefit of the brethren in need. Giving is not a proof of grace, necessarily. I, rem I remember years ago, there was a man in our church who was very successful. God had blessed him wonderfully in, in the oil boom days. And boy, he wanted to give the church a big, a brand new, big grand piano. And I had trouble with it even in those days. I said, he's very rare, he, he very rarely comes to church. He, he really loves golf more than he does God. And God had prospered him greatly. So now he's going to tip God with a new piano for the church there. And everybody say, oh, isn't that wonderful man? Also, so, so and so, such a great Christian. He's such a good giver. No, giving is not necessarily... A, an indication of God's grace in your life. But if you have the grace of God, you will be a giver. You will be a giver. And they will give of, them, their, of themselves and their substance in this way. One cannot profess to be a child of God if he is selfish, stingy, and uncaring about the needs of his brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, I, as I prayed earlier, there in Matthew chapter 25, reminded a brother of that this week. 
Then the king, this is Matthew 25, beginning with verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink, and I was a stranger, and you welcomed me, and I was naked, and you clothed me, and I was sick, and you visited me, and I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, and thirsty, and give you drink, and when did we see you a stranger, and welcomed you, and naked, and clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Do you understand this? This is the last judgment. This is the judgment day. When Jesus divides the sheep and the goats and he puts the, the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left hand, and what's the criterion? How we looked like Jesus. That's the criterion. So let's notice here, first of all, grace bestowed. There's three aspects of grace. I would speak of the, the behavior of those who have no grace from God. They're rebellious, negligent, and hostile to God's principles. This is the character which is evident in people who put Jesus to death. They were exhorted to return to God. And in God's final Old Testament appeal to them, this return would reveal itself in their generosity toward God. It, in Matthew, in Malachi, excuse me, chapter three, verses seven to twelve, an interesting passage. He he appeals to them, return to me. You return to me, see, in repentance, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. He laid that offer out there. How do they de demonstrate that? Return. He asked another question. Will a man rob God? Does God need anything? Does my money, is my money going to help God in any way? What's well, his to start with? But he says, will a man rob God? You, yet you are robbing me. How? How are we robbing you, they, they ask. In your tithes and contributions? You, you're... And why? Because you're cursed with a curse. It's not the robbing God that cursed them. They were cursed and their robbing of God was a proof of the curse. Do you see that? He said, you're, you're robbing me, even the whole nation of you. So if you want to, dem if you want to demonstrate genuine grace... Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Now, let me emphasize, this is Old Testament. And somebody said, well, tithe is a, is a tenth. He said the whole tithe. The whole tithe was upwards of 30%. Bring the whole tithe, the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. 
Food for who? God doesn't eat. For the poor. See, it's not about tithing. <laughs> it's about giving. And and how giving reflects the the whole spirit of the people involved. And this was God's judgment upon them. This is why they're cursed. They don't know the grace of God. And the proof of it is their failure to do the right thing. Bring it into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord. You, you do right by me and watch me what, what I'll do for you. And, so it's, and we don't do it. By the way, we don't do it. I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. And that's what, this is another great error in the church today. Is that somehow, if I give to God, I'm obligating God to give to me. Now, God has obligated himself. And he'll take care of me. I can tell you that from my own personal experience. But he's talking here about how grace works. When we function under the grace of God and do the right thing, God then rewards us with rewards that we don't deserve. Say, well, I'm, I'm having such a hard time right now. That's because you need it right now. You need the hard time right now. Grace is dealing with you in your need. But here's the, here's the principle. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour you a blessing until there is no more need. Not until there is no more need. And I will rebuke the devourer for you. Oftentimes God wants to get our attention by putting us into difficult situations so that it will destroy your fruits the fruits of your soil, your vine, the field, uh, and shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then, and here's the, here's the ups thing, then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. What's the delight? Not in possession of things, but in the blessing of God. Do you see the difference? So there are then the, the next aspect of grace are those who live by the standard of cheap grace. And oh my, how, how we're prone to do this. We profess to follow God and to live by His grace, but then we redefine grace as freedom to live as we choose without fear of punishment. Well, you can live however you want to live because God won't punish you now because he's already punished you in Jesus. So that's, that's my excuse to just to live to my flesh. God's not going to judge me now. I mean, he's already done it in Christ so I can just live like I please. And we have a lot of Christians who think that now they don't you know, maybe they're not so brass, but that's exactly what they believe. And I've read it in their own writing. 
They reject God's standards as legalist, as legalistic. God's standards have not changed. And keeping God's standards is not legalism. It's legalism when you try to use God's standards to get His favor. You, you, see, the, you see the difference here? I live by God's standards as, a, as obedience of grace. That's not legalism. But if I don't have His grace and I come to God and I say, okay, God, I'm going to try to please you here and I'm going to live according to your standards. First of all, I can't do it because God's standards are impossible to live by. In my flesh, without the Spirit of God, the grace of God. But there are those who, who reject God's standards as legalism and arguing that grace is freedom from the law. Well, look at what Jesus himself said in his kingdom manifesto there, which is uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 17 to 20. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, and here's the kick, kicker right here, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The only way for your righteousness to exceed theirs is by the grace of God. And then the third aspect is true, is true believers live by, the, by God's grace, true grace which is the dynamic of the living God given to certain of Adam's race, making them believers and enabling them with the desire and ability to live in harmony with God and His Word. Let me read that again. What is true grace? It is the, the dynamic of God, the power of God. Given not earned, given to certain of Adam's race, his elect, which then enables them to be real believers. Who is a believer? One who really trusts Jesus. Believers. And then also enabling them with the desire and ability to live in harmony with God and His Word. I want to do the will of God. So Paul encouraged the Philippian believers, and I've used this verse many, many times. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now also in my... So not... 
So now, not all also as in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, you're not doing it to please me. You're doing it because it's the work of God in you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, for, and here's, see, because, here's the reason. It is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. See, we give because God is working in us to do His good pleasure. We don't give to, to uh, impress the church. We don't give to impress God. We give because this is the will of God for us. So the nature of true grace may be defined as follows. First of all, its source is God. Its character is a gift, unmerited, undeserved, bestowed on His people. We don't deserve a thing. Thirdly, its expectation is a willing mind that results in active obedience. So we read there in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. So now, he, so, so Paul says, now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if a readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has and not according to what he does not have. So do it. Because that's going to demonstrate whether your desire is really of God or not. And if it is, it's of God, it will be matched by your completing it. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has and not what he has not. God has never asked you to give something you don't have. And then fourthly, the, it's evidence. It's a demonstration of a genuine love for the brethren. Uh, we, uh, we're so selfish and churches are, and people are so selfish in these days. But Paul, in verse 8, Paul said to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is also genuine. So then secondly here is the example of, the gen of genuine grace. The example of genuine grace. Paul begins this charged then to the Corinthians to fulfill their commitment by giving the example of, of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That's northern Greece. Macedonia, and that would include the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. So here's, the, here's Greece. Here's Macedonia up here in the north. And then down here to the south is Achaia. And in that province of Achaia is the city of Corinth. So these are, these are closely related here. And I think there's an interesting connection here to the letter uh, of the letter to the Philippians is his most joyous letter. Why was Paul so filled with joy over these Philippian believers? I think it's because of this situation. 
how that they responded to Paul's desire that they help. So how do we keep from, from being small, harsh, and caught up in our own materialistic worlds? The answer is by expressing the grace of giving. Giving, grace giving is a privilege and a joy and a fact then proved conclusively by the Philippians. Their joy in the Lord just was something that Paul caught. So their burden then was to demonstrate their great love for the brethren and which would become then came then as they experienced a great trial of affliction. Here the Macedonian churches were heavily persecuted by the Romans. We learn this from the Roman historian Livy. So here's some people like the people like the believers down there in Judea who were living under desperate straits because of persecution. And Paul turns to them and says, Okay, guys, look, I'll tell you. You guys, you're, what you're facing right now is the same as they're facing down there. So I'm not going to ask anything of you. That's what he says. I'm, I'm not asking you to give anything. And they said, Oh, no, Paul, no, don't tell us that. We've got we've to help. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Their joy in the Lord was evidenced by their willing spirit. According to verse 3, he says, For to their power, their ability, see, I bear record, yea, and beyond, they were willing of themselves. According to the AV. I like the, um, the authorized version on, in that verse. For, their, for to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, their ability, they were willing of themselves. And they insisted then that they must be able to participate in this partnership, this fellowship. It's called a fellowship there in verse 4, this, the fellowship of ministering to the saints. And, and, and also A.V., the authorized version. They were willing to obey God. Verse 5, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Wow. So this example then served to prompt Corinthian obedience. So Paul applies it to them there in verses 6 through 8. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, and I've, thought, I've sometimes read that and thought, I wonder if Paul's being somewhat sarcastic here. <laughs> I kind of changed my mind because of his relief at the way they have received his letter. But, it, but if you kind of look at it, it does sound a little sarcastic. They excelled in everything. That was the problem. In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your in our love for you. And that, that 
last phrase here, which I think controlled my mind a little bit on that, in your in our love for you, we we love you people. So and then he said, "See that you excel in this act of grace also." I say this not as a command. I'm not telling you to do this. But I'm asking you to prove by the, earnest, by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Do you catch that? You're not like some preachers getting up there. Look, we got bills to pay. We got a building to, to take care of. We got, we got big debts and my salary and everything. You got to get, you, you got to tithe. You people need to tithe. Tithe. Nuh-uh. said, here's a need. And it's your brothers in Christ that are suffering. And you can help them. And I'm not, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm asking you to show how much you love Jesus and how much you love them. Because that will show whether God's grace in you is genuine. So the sacrifice then of, of the Lord Jesus and, and is brought into it at this point here in verse number 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Wow. Just look to Jesus. Follow his example. We've been singing that all morning. <laughs> so let's just develop these principles then. Thirdly here. The grace is evidenced in a sacrificial spirit. I'm going to stop living for myself and I'm going to live for Christ and for His people. Grace demands more of the Christ follower than the law ever demanded of those under it. Think about that. Boy, it was so hard for those people there in the Old Testament. They had all these commandments to keep. I want to tell you something. It didn't get easier for believers in the New Testament, it got a lot harder. But the provision got a lot more generous. See, grace never coerces obedience, it enables it, making the Spirit willing. And there, it, there's no grudging workers under grace. You see that? They, they were grudging in the Old Testament under the law, but not under grace. Secondly, grace, is, is, grace of giving is universally expected of professing saints. As all the Macedonian churches had evidenced the grace of God, so the Corinthian church was expected to evidence the same grace. And that was verse set, number 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all and in all earnestness, and in your love, in our love for you, see that you excel in this grace too. Willing obedience demonstrates the sincerity of professing believers. And thirdly, and lastly, 
Grace always provides for the need and then blesses the provider. Not, I'm not talking about here prosperity gospel garbage. I'm talking about real truth. In fact, I really think prosperity gospel preachers got their, their understanding from this. They're just applying it in the wrong way. When you give, you obligate God. So you give God a thousand, well, you give me a thousand dollars, and God, that obligates God to give you a Cadillac. Baloney. I need a new jet. You people need to dig deep. I know you don't have much, but you give me what you've got so I can get my new jet. So I can go around the country and show everybody how famous I am. And you obligate God to give you stuff too. Well then, where is it, Lord? I'm waiting for it. I, I, didn't, I don't see no Cadillac yet. Ah. Now, but look at, again, verse uh, chapter 9 there, verses 12 to 15. For if the readiness is there, there is accept, it is accepted according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance... Uh, uh, excuse me, that's, that's 8, 12 to 15. Your, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. That there may be fairness. Biblical equality. As it is written. And he quotes here from, from the Old Testament. Whoever gathered much had nothing over. That's from from uh, uh, the the uh, manna in the Old Test in uh, the the book of Deuteronomy, or uh, excuse me, Exodus. Whoever had gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let's pray, Father. Teach us the grace of giving. We live in a day when, when we're going to need to exercise that grace. And we know it's not us, and we're not trying to please you by what we give and how much we give. But we please you by surrendering ourselves to you and giving you all. That we turn everything over to you. You are our God. You've given us of your Son. Now we give ourselves to you. Not to live out our own pleasures and satisfy our own desires, but that we may do the will of God and bring glory and honor to your name. We need your grace. We need your working in us to both will and to do of your good pleasure. And I pray, God, that you would, would work in us in that for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.